I'm Alison Burrell. Welcome to the Radiation Research Society um, vodcast. I'm here with uh, Jody Bells. And um, Jody, so I hear you're doing a research project on um, slow release of docetaxel in what? What is it? The Brachiotherapy spacers. Brachiotherapy spacers uh, to treat prostate cancer, right? To radiosensitize exactly. the prostate cancer um, cells prior to radiation. Mm -hmm. So, um, would you tell me a little bit more about brachiotherapy? Because that's really interesting what they do with these, these spacers. Yeah, so currently in brachiotherapy, um, clinicians will inject dozens of radioactive seeds directly into the prostate itself. Um, and these radioactive seeds are spaced out with little plastic spacers. So these spacers are really just to prevent the radiation from overlapping with one another um, and for the spatial guidance when the clinician's injecting, so there's little tick marks on the needle. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is replace those plastic seeds with a degradable seed that will release docetaxel directly into the prostate and then have the docetaxel release slowly while the radiation is acting slowly over the course of 60 or 80 days, whatever radioactive seed you have. Um, and then the docetaxel will radiosensitize the prostate during that whole brachytherapy course of radiation therapy. So in brachiotherapy, these radioactive seeds, do they degrade as well as the spacers? No, so these seeds are um, for low-dose radiation. They're typically permanent implants that will just have a half-life of, so for I-125 seeds, that's the most common brachytherapy seed. It has a half-life of about 69 days. Okay. Um, so what we're aiming to do is have these degradable seeds or degradable spacers so that the total release of docetaxel will be during that time. So we have a nice linear release um, to radiosensitize. So right now, clinicians will usually give docetaxel IV treatment for metastatic prostate cancer. Um, so what we're aiming to do is prevent that need for the IV treatment and deliver it locally there. Because one of the great things about docetaxel is it's not only a chemotherapeutic, but it's a radiosensitizer. So the way that it works is it freezes the cell in the G2M phase, which is the most radiosensitive phase. Mm -hmm. um, so it inherently is a radiosensitizer. So we expect it to treat the cells and also pre-sensitize them during the radiation. So are you already doing this in clinical trials? No, so right now we're still in preclinical studies. Uh, what we first did with our research is we wanted to show that delivering it locally was a feasible way of delivering docetaxel. Um, right now it's delivered uh, in the IV formulation taxotere and it's been shown to be pretty effective um, at high doses, but there's also a lot of systemic side effects. Uh, so we did a one-time dose equivalently um, IV versus the IT directly in the tumor. And we showed that at the same dose one time, we were able to completely cure um, over half of our, our mice with the intratumoral injection, whereas our IV mice had a lot of toxicities, they had a lot of weight loss, um, and initially they responded to the treatment, but pharmacokinetics show that the drug only stays in the body for no more than a few days, so that all the mice ended up with tumor recurrence and none of them were treated. So we really showed that delivering it locally was a feasible way, and then we moved on to um, combining it with the radiation to see if at two low doses we could have a synergistic effect. And that's what I'm currently working on now. We've shown that at half of the dose that we use to treat the mice, um, 
when you combine that with fractionated dosing of radiation, we were able to, it's still ongoing, but we were able to cure um, about 50% of our mice so far. And this is 150 days out. That's, that's amazing. And I forgot to ask you, uh, what university are you associated with? Oh, so I'm currently at Northeastern University in Boston. I work with Dr. Sridhar's group, um, and we work closely with Dana-Farber, the radiation oncologist over there, um, so that we can really get the clinical translation aspect of this, because mm -hmm. you don't just want to do research and not have it go anywhere. Right. So we've started off using nanoparticles, but we've ended up moving closely just towards um, FDA-approved materials so that we can make it easy to translate into the clinic for a future. Now, is this something that's been done before using these degradable intratumor brachytherapy spacers? So intratumoral spacers um, or intratumoral implants have been used before. This isn't a new idea, um, but this application of it is the first of its kind. Uh, no one's really ever used an implant that will degrade slowly right, in order to radiosensitize. Mm -hmm. So our lab has shown that you can incorporate a number of different agents or molecules or nanoparticles that can sensitize the prostate or pancreatic cancer or breast cancer. Um, when you combine it with radiation. So what we do is we pretreat these tumors, we let the spacer start to degrade, um, the drug or nanoparticle, whatever it is, will slowly release into the tumor and then you can hit it with radiation. And we've shown that we can have really great synergistic effects with that. So normally these spacers are still used even when you're just doing regular brachiotherapy. Are the spacers just like the, um, the radioactive seeds um, permanent implants or do they normally degrade um, um, or is th this is also a new, a new technique, having it degrade? Yeah, so I think what's currently used are non-degradable spacers. Um, it's biocompatible, mm -hmm. but I think recently they've started to move towards degradable spacers. Uh, there's a lot of degradable polymers out there, right. um, and clinicians are really trying to stay away from any sort of permanent right, implant. Exactly. So that's why if we slowly have it degrade, yeah. we're using PLGA, which is an FDA-approved material. It's commonly used as a biodegradable implant or nanoparticle. So it's really well characterized. Yeah, um, if you can prevent any possible side effects or long-term exactly. um, effects, that would be great. Yeah, so this completely resorbs into the body and will degrade through natural metabolic um, processes. So. Um, so what are what kind of techniques are you using to evaluate the efficacy of this procedure? Are you just looking at the size of the tumor? Um, are you using any markers or DNA damage markers um, to evaluate how well it's radiosensitizing the cells? Sorry, that was a lot of questions. <laughs> but uh, So the study is happening now, so we haven't gotten that far yet okay. because most of our mice are still alive. But um, when we do start to sacrifice them, we'll do some tunnel assays to measure the apoptosis in the tumor um, and look at the cast base. And then we're going to look at some gamma H2AX and see the DMA damage that is experienced. But we've now irradiated the cells 150 days ago. Okay. So it's really trying to compare the um, markers that are present in the mice that were irradiated that long ago and versus the ones that were pre-sensitized with the treatment. Right, because gamma H2X, you're not going to see yeah, we're not gonna that really far see out. Exactly. Um, right. So in our next study, we're going to do a toxicity study, and we'll be measuring those markers immediately after treatment, um, along with any sort of blood chemistry and toxicities, so we can measure whether or not our implant is causing any adverse effects. Mm -hmm. And we really want to show that when you 
do the treatment locally, it will prevent the systemic toxicities that you're seeing when you do IV docetaxel with radiation because even though you try and do targeted radiation, you, there's still a lot of healthy organs down there um, that we're really trying to bypass. Exactly. So. Um, and so as far as typical treatment for prostate cancer, um, does this docetaxel and radiation combination therapy, um, is, is this a pretty common way to treat it? it does it only work with certain, um, certain types of mm -hmm. prostate cancer? Um, yeah, so there, um, prostate cancer is really slow growing, so there's a few ways to decide what treatment route to go. So if it's very slow growing, they'll do a watch and wait scenario, and then they kind of assess it every year to see what the next treatment should be. But for aggressive prostate cancers that are usually the ones that are deadly, um, a prostectomy would be used where you remove the whole prostate um, in combination with radiation. And then as it starts to metastasize, they'll add in this chemo agent, docetaxel. Um, but here what we're trying to do is prevent the spread of the disease before it happens. Mm -hmm. So, and really for patients that have no other treatment options where maybe you've already received a prostectomy and your cancer has recurred um, and the prognosis does not look so great. So you really want to tackle it from all angles because the cancer is mutating and now adapting to these first lines of treatment that you've already seen and now it can become unresponsive. So a lot of the first lines of treatment um, while they're great and we have early detection now, mm -hmm. uh, they still are not giving us the quality of life that we want to see in patients down the line, and that's where a lot of these treatments are failing. Right. So are there, do you ever take into account like pharmacogenomics, like looking at you know, precision medicine, looking at each patient's tumor individually um, and what its genetics are, mm -hmm. um, and then using that, knowing, oh, this treatment works better with this um, uh, mutation set. Yeah, so that's something that we would definitely get into when moving into clinical trials. You need to carefully design your trials so that they succeed, and that's where we'd want to look at patients that have the right mutations that we know would have a better shot at responding to this treatment. But docetaxel, um, it is a microtubule stabilizer, mm -hmm. so it's pretty genetic independent. There are cell lines that are resistant to it, but a lot of them will respond initially. And we see that with, uh, if they just came out with a clinical trial that showed when you start to feel bone pain and then you administer docetaxel before it even shows up on the scans that you've metastasized, they've shown that you've had a lot better um, median survival times and that your treatment ended up being far superior than before you didn't administer it. So I think this is really something that you want to listen to the patient and look at the patient's genetic profile and see if they're really a right candidate for this sort of option, as with any sort of right. treatment. Now everyone's moving into personalized medicine, which yeah. I think that's really the future. Exactly. Um, and so you had said, you know, docetaxel was the uh, the main chemo that you were using mm -hmm. in these spacers, but you also said you could add other types of exactly. drugs. So once you do this proof of concept, mm -hmm. um, is it pretty easy to um, switch out different types of medication within those spacers to accommodate people that might not respond or aren't responding to docetaxel? Yeah, so the way um, that the FDA would approve the drug, it would have to be classified under a new drug delivery agent. Okay. So we'd still have to go through clinical trials, but as a proof of concept in our lab, we've shown that 
you can change out uh, docetaxel. We've done BMN or talzoparib, um, a PARP inhibitor, and we've shown that that can cause a lot of DNA damage that we weren't seeing when it was given orally. Um, or we added in gold nanoparticles to radiosensitize pancreatic cancer. So you'd still have to create them all as their own individual, but changing out the molecule changes the degradation kinetics and how it releases and everything is different hydrophobicity and if it's going to degrade at the right speed. So you'd still have to tailor the um, spacer to the exact treatment that you would want. So you mentioned pancreatic, so your, your main project is working on prostate mm -hmm. cancer, um, but this brachiotherapy um, and spacers can be used um, in other types of cancers. Yeah, so we're looking more at using um, the spacer as a sole monotherapy that you can inject into maybe non-resectable tumors mm -hmm. and then add outside radiation or external beam radiation to come at it from two different ways, doing the chemo and the radiation or sensitizing it and then adding the radiation. But brachytherapy, as we mentioned before, people don't really like the permanent seeds and it's used in very limited situations. Um, now they have high dose radiation uh, brachytherapy where you can actually go in with a probe, irradiate the spot that you're looking for and remove it. So these permanent seeds are very limited in their application and it's great where we can use these spacers, but this is really just a platform that we can do a lot of different things with it. Uh, off the top of your head, do you, other than prostate and pancreatic, what are other types of cancers that this might be used on? Um, so Solid right now, tumors, yeah, so we've, um, we've been doing a lot of work with talazoparib for breast cancer mm -hmm. um, in these spacers because right now PARP inhibitors are given orally and they have really bad bioavailability and pharmacokinetics, so the patient has to take tons of pills every single day and it ends up for such potent PARP inhibitors, it ends up giving bad side effects um, and treating off-site toxicities. So we gave it um, directly into a metastatic breast cancer model mm -hmm. um, in mice and we've shown that the primary tumor ended up responding a lot better with the local treatment than with the oral gavage. Um, but again, you're really only treating the primary tumor that you put the spacer into, so it's very limited that way. Right. So you still have to know your limitations. So in prostate cancer, if you do have micrometastases, you can still deliver docetaxel um, intravenously, but you can also radiosensitize the prostate using this thing. So it would really just be an added on treatment. Right. Um, do you see in the future possibly doing a combination of two different drugs within the spacers? Yeah, we've actually just been talking about that in our lab, trying to figure out what combination we might want to do, um, what dosing you'd want to do. And the only challenges that I see there are for radiosensitizing, you want to have the drug there before the radiation. Um, and in some drug combinations, you want one available before the other or vice versa. So it really depends on what the best treatment delivery schedule is, and then we can design it that way. Um, but we've definitely been thinking that's, about doing that. It's very interesting. Yeah, because then it's just a one-time delivery. You don't have to go in for a few weeks or months and then maybe go back and get another injection mm -hmm. um, rather than the every three weeks going in for hours of chemo. So it's a really cool option, I think. Being able to um, have these spacers release the drugs at different times within the same spacer mm -hmm. or would it be two different spacers, one that degrades quicker than the other? 
Yeah, it, that would be the two options I mean, that we're deciding yeah, I between. Feel like yeah, this is a, a bioengineering. Yeah, exactly. Uh, problem to. I think it would be more feasible to deliver them separately because then if you need to tailor the dose to the person, mm -hmm. then you can change them out. Um, right now we're giving doses by the length of the spacer. So we have zero order kinetics of our release. So no matter how long you cut your spacer, the same amount of drug is being released every single day, um, which is really important for scheduling and when you're trying to treat a mouse and then move into a human, you want your release kinetics to stay the same. Right. So what we would end up doing is right now we have two millimeters of spacer um, moving into human. We would have five to eight millimeters and that would just be a higher dose that the patient would receive every day and that would translate. Um, so if we needed to combine multiple drugs into the same implant and then the dosing's not correct, we'd have to start at square one. Um. This is a technical question, but is the dose um, associated with the size of the tumor or the BMI of the patient? Or the, uh, the BMI of the patient. Okay. So right now for docetaxel, they're giving it um, 75 mix per meter squared of the patient. Um, so and then we're doing half of the maximum tolerated dose in a mouse. Uh, so it's really dependent on the size of whatever you're treating. Um, but that, again, we can scale easily with our spacer. Yeah. So um, what's interesting is that I can't remember if you said it was docetaxel or if it was a different medication that um, giving it orally didn't have any effect on DNA damage uh, or increasing the radiosensitivity of the cancer cells, whereas when you gave it intratumorally, you did see that DNA damage. So um, are you going to, in the future, possibly look into different types of drugs that, I mean, you wouldn't even think to use because they don't have any effect orally or, or intravenously? Um, yeah, I think that's where um, now nanomedicine has really brought back a lot of drug options that have failed in the past because delivery was mm -hmm. not optimized or the toxicities were too high. So now people are trying to put the drugs in a nanoparticle to protect the body from the particle, or protect the body from the drug and the drug from the particle. Um, and here it would be the same thing where you could deliver maybe something that isn't as potent or has a lot of bioavailability issues or pharmacokinetics or toxicities where now you can directly put it into the tumor and you don't have to worry about all of those things. Right. So I think this leaves a lot more room for options um, we'd still have to investigate drugs that aren't necessarily in the clinic yet, but maybe in clinical trials. Um, but we, that's why researchers work closely with clinicians to see what they think is best and get the actual impact of what they're doing. Is your PI an MD or a PhD? He's a PhD in physics, but he's now in the last decade moved into the nanomedicine realm and he started a lot of... Uh, teaching grants at our university, but he's been very instrumental in setting up these collaborations because we're right in Boston. So he's, yeah, he's had a lot of collaborations in the city, at the hospitals, um, making sure that all of the students get in the door with the clinicians so that we can really understand what is important and what we're doing. All right. Well, I guess, um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about your project? Uh, no, I think it's really, um, something that can be really translatable. And I think that's what's 
important while like basic research is really crucial in understanding um, how cancer progresses and how patients might respond we really need drugs that can get to patients now um, mm -hmm. and this was really designed so that a patient can use it okay yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this project, and I love its translational nature. Um, hopefully, we'll talk to you again in a year or so and yeah. see uh, see where it's going. Yeah, hopefully, it's gone a lot further in a year, and next, we're going to move into large animal models and test out the real pharmacokinetics and toxicities associated with it so that we can move into clinical trials. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Jody. Thanks, yeah, thanks for joining you. us. Thanks for having me.